Well, like many of you, the Wits had a dog when I was growing up. Her name was Sunshine. She was a friendly little terrier who liked to lick your face and have her belly rubbed. And it was somewhere around the age of seven or eight that I figured out not all dogs are alike. One day I was on my bicycle and I rode up to the top of our very steep street down in Orange County and I rode by the corner house at the top and it had a large wooden fence around it that you really couldn't look through and on that fence were a number of signs that said, beware of dogs. And to an eight-year-old that was a rather intriguing thing. I wondered what those dogs exactly looked like. My dog was nothing to fear, so I took my bike and leaned it up against that wooden fence and stood up on the seat and peered over the top of that wooden fence. And what did I find? But two Doberman pinchers that were of a rather foul disposition who had just had their ears cropped and taped up and They met me at the top of that fence trying to bite off my face. And in their enthusiasm to eat me, I took off on my bicycle with my legs splayed out, letting those pedals go around as fast as they could down this hill, terrified, and I have not forgotten it yet. Ever since, I've been very careful and conscious of beware of dog signs. We come to the third chapter of Philippians and Paul hangs a sign out on the wall of the church that says, beware of dogs. This is one of the most beloved sections of this epistle, this great epistle. It addresses fundamental doctrines really of the faith, justification, sanctification, resurrection, Particularly, it is a defense of those great Reformation distinctives of salvation alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the definitive word being alone. This chapter sets in bold relief true Christianity from a false and counterfeit religion. It differentiates a true gospel from a false a saving gospel from the futile efforts of man to try and recommend themselves to God by good works. And what Paul begins here in the first few verses, he will continue to unpack throughout the chapter. And so I didn't feel compelled to get everything in this morning. And uh, the further I got into this, I thought I would take these first three verses on. We're only going to get really through the first two, but we'll expand in the weeks ahead in the particulars. So We can relax and take our time. Let's read together. Philippians 3, we'll pick up in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now those three verses divide out very 
obviously, very simply, into three convenient headings. I'll just give them to you right up front. We're only going to get to the first two today. The first is this, the commandment to rejoice in the Lord. That's in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we find the caution to beware of the dogs. And verse 3, the characteristics of true Christians. Let's consider the first, the commandment to rejoice in the Lord. Paul begins by saying, finally, my brethren. The strange thing about that, of course, is that we're only at the midpoint of the book. These are the first words of the third chapter. There are four chapters. We've got two whole chapters to go. That word can be translated as far as the rest is concerned or furthermore or moreover. The point is that Paul is simply making a transition at this point from what he was talking about to what he is about to enter into. He's moving on to another subject. There will be another finally in chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, my brethren, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. As we've noted in the past, joy is the predominant theme of this great epistle. It is perhaps the theme of the letter. Paul is speaking of joy in every chapter. Chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul offers prayer with joy in his every prayer for all of the Philippians. Chapter 2 and verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Chapter 2 and verses 17 and 18, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of the service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Verses 28 and 29, receive him, that is Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy. And hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete was deficient, what was deficient in your service to me. Chapter 3, verse 1, where we are this morning, and then again in chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity before This is a letter of joy. This is an epistle of joy. And so the question is, what is joy? And I know that this is somewhat by way of reminder, but I want to give you today maybe five guidelines. You know what those things are. They tie down your tent. You remember that? Or a tarp. Five guidelines to anchor this concept in your head. What what is biblical joy? It's very different than mere earthly happiness, As good as happiness is, joy is very much better. Well, one thing we could say is that joy is supernatural. It is not natural. Real joy, biblical joy, is something that no human can produce. It is not something that's innate to certain certain personality types or certain natures of people. This is something that comes from above. This is something that is not available really to the masses. Joy is a divine gift. It is something that comes from the outside. He is that inexhaustible fountain of joy. The psalmist wrote, in your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. Psalm 1611. 
God is a God, think of it, is, is, is a God who rejoices. His, his chin is not dragging the ground. He is not someone who is constantly upset and unsettled and concerned about the future and troubled as to how things are working out on planet Earth. He is a God who is high and holy, sovereign, perfect, and altogether brimming with joy. And he shares that joy with his people. You remember that Jesus, it's said of him, was acquainted with grief, wasn't he? He was a man of sorrows. And yet, Hebrews tells us that the Father anointed the Son with the oil of joy above his companions. That tells us something about joy right there. That a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief could also be brimming with joy beyond any man. John 15 and verse 11, Jesus said that he was full of joy and he wanted to share that joy with his disciples. He wanted their joy to be full in him. He wanted to take his joy and give it to them. You're full aware that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit and that the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. You remember that. So joy is something that is from God. It is supernatural, not natural. Secondly, it is relational. And I want you to think with me about this. This is an important point. It's relational, not circumstantial or material. Authentic joy comes because you have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Joy is the glad fruit of a right relationship with God. And it comes from knowing the Lord. Christ is the ground of our joy. If you want to think about it that way, you'll, you'll notice in this text, right from the very get-go, Paul says rejoice, but notice those next three words. This is the first time he adds this to that commandment. He says rejoice in the Lord it's a relational thing. It is not circumstantial in the least. James Boyce said this, and I think it's one of the simplest and yet best definitions of joy I've read. And it's simple, quote, joy is supernatural delight in God. It is an inner gladness in God, for all of his goodness to you in Christ. That's what joy is. That's the essence of it. It is the gladness that we experience in relationship with God and the assurance that our redemption is in Christ and it is complete. That's why the Bible calls it the joy of our salvation. We have fellowship with God through faith in Christ and therefore that becomes for us an unfailing fountain of joy at any point in life. There is no time when the joy that we have in our relationship with God should not be a present reality in our lives. Thirdly, it is fundamental not optional. What do I mean by that? Simply this, 
that joy is standard equipment in the Christian life. It's not an option. There aren't people who have somehow, you know, added that on. They haven't purchased it. They haven't found some, some secret key. Everybody who is truly in Christ knows the joy of God at some level. The question is, how do we know more of it in our lives? How, how do we have this, this saturate our lives in a way that perhaps it doesn't at this point? Another way you can think of it, for those of you who are more digitized in your thinking, it comes bundled on the hard drive of the regenerate life. If you've been born again in Christ and you have the indwelling spirit, then the joy of God is fundamental to your life. Think of it for a minute. This is a commandment that Paul gives the Philippians and is giving here to us. It is a commandment to be obeyed, which says something about it, doesn't it? It it tells you that this is something that is possible. This tells you that joy in the Christian life is something that in some way, shape, or form is, is available through an act of the will. It's available to you through obedience. It's in the present tense. And by that, Paul means that this isn't an occasional thing in your world. No, this is something that is a perpetual pursuit. We are to rejoice, as he says in chapter 4 and verse 4, what? Always in him. It comes also in the active voice, which means that God simply will not do this for you. You don't sit around like a bump on a log waiting for God to make you joyful. Joyful is something that we actively pursue always in him. You have to cultivate it in your life. I like to call it a marvelous obligation. It's a a delightful duty. It is a moral imperative for those of us who are in Christ to rejoice in Christ. And if I am in Christ, if you are in Christ, and he is in us, then that experience of joy in him should not be something that is a sometime experience, but it should be something that is a perpetual reality in our lives. Who he is, what Christ has done, what he will do, all of those things are rock solid, aren't they? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he's done for us does not change. He's solved every significant question in life, hasn't he? And what he does for you today in heaven as he prays and intercedes on your behalf before the Father as your righteous advocate, that is true today and that will be true tomorrow. And what he has promised you about the future, the adoption that is yours, the resurrection that will come, the salvation that he has promised, the fellowship that we have with him. Beloved, those are not up and down, here today, gone tomorrow. Those things are rock solid. And they are forever. And therefore our joy is rock solid. And we can rejoice in him at all times, in all circumstances, forever and ever. Our joy also, fourthly, is substantial. It is not superficial. It is substantial. It is not superficial. It is supernatural. It is relational. It is fundamental. And it is substantial. 
That is to say that our joy is strong. It is heavy. It is immovable. It is not here today and gone tomorrow. It's here today and it is here tomorrow. It is nothing that is flimsy or temporary or fleeting. It is not like happiness, a mere giddy lightheartedness because things are going well in your life. It's not whimsical. It's not come and go. It is unshakable because it is built on the foundation of Christ and the sure word of God. That is the, the house that stands when the winds blow and the floods crash against that house. It is that house that is built upon that solid rock that stands firm in the storms of life. It is substantial, it is immovable, it is unchanging, and it transcends every circumstance. The Lord Jesus Christ is our high tower. He is our rock of refuge. He is a bulwark unfailing, as we sang earlier this morning, and he is our all-sufficient savior. There's a fifth thing we should note about joy, and I don't know whether you've made this connection before or not, but biblical joy is doctrinal, before it is emotional. It is doctrinal before it is emotional. In other words, how we feel to a great extent is, is determined by how we think. What we know, what we believe, our joy is dependent upon the truth revealed in the scriptures. I could put it this way, beloved, your, your joy or the lack of it is, is directly proportional to the depth of your relationship with Christ. That's one reason why we see some people who are stable and strong and they seem to just be able to take the bumps of life in a way that others do not. They are not unglued. Somebody rightfully said, you show me a Bible that's falling apart, I'll show you a life that isn't. You see, our joy in Christ is, is directly proportional to how well we know Christ. How deep is that relational? Is that relationship? How, how intimately do we know him? How confident are we? Because we have, as the, as the hymn writer said, proved him over and over. You see, if we know him deeply, if we are well acquainted with Christ through the written word, if we have spent time in prayer, if we have enjoyed the fellowship of the saints, if we have pursued those means of grace that God has given us to deepen our relationship with him, well then our joy will tend to be much fuller than those who have merely stood on the periphery of, of the Christian faith and, and have some sort of loose attachment to Jesus. They know he died on a cross and they know that he rose from the dead and that's enough for them. Well, that won't sustain you in the day like someone who knows Christ personally and deeply and richly. 
You see, this is why mature people in the faith are so stable and steady and why so many others' joy is so easily shaken. It's directly related to, to, to their relative ignorance of Christ and his plans and his purposes. They don't know the book. You know if you have been into my office, and a number of you have, and I'm so grateful for it because I love you, and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to build into your life and to have you build into mine. But you'll know how many times I will, I will hold up the book literally and physically and say, do you see how critical it is that you know this and you believe this? A lot of times, perhaps, as a kid, you got those chocolate bunnies at Easter that, that you opened the package and you would pull them out and you would bite into them and they would just sort of crack and crumble in your mouth because they were hollow. One year at Christmas, I got a large Hershey's Kiss about this big and it weighed a ton because it was rock Solid. Well, not quite. I could eat it, but it was a challenge, and I, and I did eat it. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. Who is Jesus to you, and how well do you know him? You have a light Jesus or a heavy Jesus? You know him deeply. You know him intimately. You know him personally. You draw on him daily. Or was he just your way to eternal life? This is why we encourage you to be involved in a home fellowship group. This is why we encourage you to get involved in the life of the church, person to person. This is why we want you here at 9 o'clock and 10.30. We don't want to dominate your life, beloved. What we want is for the church to draw near and to draw tight and to know Christ. What was Paul's goal with every man? To present him what? Complete in Christ. You see, you can have kind of a loose affiliation with Jesus, but you're going to get bounced all over the place unless you grow with respect to salvation. The believer's life, all of it, is utterly dependent upon sound doctrine. What, what did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you understand how vital to your life? We have so many emaciated Christians in America professing Christ, but they do not know the content of their faith. Do you? Do we? Are we pursuing this end together that we might be well fed from the word of God? Your life depends on it. Your peace, your hope, and your joy. It's all built on the foundation of sound doctrine and the true gospel. And I think this is why Paul couples this commandment in verse 1 to rejoice with a warning in the next verse about those who would seek to undermine the true gospel. You lose the true gospel to false teachers, you lose your joy. There are dogs in this world, beloved, and they are seeking to steal your joy. You've known it. You've been at a picnic. 
You've been at a party. You've been at a Thanksgiving dinner when, when the dog ends up with the turkey, right? You've known it at a, at a picnic when you've left your plate for a moment. You just turned your head for a second and gone. There goes the sandwich. There are dogs who are seeking to spy out your freedom in Christ and they would take it. There are dogs who look at your blood-bought freedom. They look at that blood-bought peace that you have in Christ and they'll seek to run off with it. They want to scarf down your hope. They will make off with your joy if you're not careful. And this is why Paul writes on the second part of verse one, notice he says, my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Now, some people will say, well, that looks backwards. I don't believe so. I think it looks forward. He's setting them up for what he is about to say. It would be as if you said to your children, look, I know I've told you this many, many times, but I'm gonna tell you again because it's a safeguard for you. They get that look on their face. Don't get that look on your face. Paul wants your joy to be full. And he, he says, look, I, 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 it's no trouble for me to tell this to you. I, I'll go over it again because it's a safeguard for you. Repetition is the mother of all learning. Every pastor knows it. Every parent knows it. You've got to teach and reteach. And here comes Paul again, and he's going to not only command them to rejoice in the Lord, but secondly, what follows on the heels of that, he gives us a caution to beware of the dogs. Look at verse 2 with me. There's a dramatic change in tone here. It almost jerks your head around. He, he, he's going to set the false gospel against the true gospel in verse 3. He is going to mark out in these verses those who are religious from those who are truly righteous. Those who profess to be children of God from those who genuinely possess the Spirit and are truly His. It's a very strong warning. Look at it. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. There's the fence. There are three beware of the dog warnings on there. These are all referring to the same group of people. The dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision. It's one group of people. And Paul says, look out for them. This is a very serious responsibility for the Philippians in their day. It's a very serious responsibility for us in our own. He points his finger at a group known as Judaizers who were troubling the Philippian church. If they were not troubling the church, if Paul did not expect them to be there, why write the warning? Paul knows they're there because they're always there. Every time he goes to a church, preaches the true gospel, builds the people up in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, the minute Paul walks out the door, there are a group of dogs. There's a, there, there's a pack of dogs who come into the church. Every time. And these dogs dogged him. They were always on his heels. They were always coming after to undo what Paul had done in preaching the truth. These Judaizers sought to intermingle 
old covenant Jewish requirements with new covenant truth. And they would, they would seek to, to put the law of Moses on Christians. They were always attempting to, to impose Jewish ceremonial law and practice on the Gentiles. And you can see that in Acts 15 if you want to read there later. If you want to be right with God, these men would say, you must be circumcised. We're going to come back to circumcision next week and see if we can understand that more clearly. But you recall at this level anyway that circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember that? These men wanted to impose that sign on Christians. And it confused the gospel. And I didn't want to get lost in circumcision today. I just want you to understand that it is a rite from the old covenant, a ceremonial rite that was performed in the flesh that identified a person as a covenant child as God's people. These men preached, here's the point, that men are made right with God not by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, but that man is made right with God. Yes, Jesus is part of it, they would say, but man is made right with God by taking these ceremonial requirements and applying them and adding them, adding obedience to the Mosaic law, their gospel was one of addition. It was Jesus, yes, plus Moses. It was the grace of God, yes, plus the works of man. It was for them Jesus on, in one hand and, and a knife in the other. In their minds, Jesus was, if you will, an addendum to the law. And they taught that believers were saved in part by keeping the ceremonial law and that that salvation was maintained by observing faithfully the law of Moses. Now listen, nothing but nothing will steal your joy faster than thinking you must keep the law in order to keep God happy. That you must keep the law in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. Have you tried keeping the law? Have you listened to the law, James says? Because if you try to keep it, you've got to understand that you must keep what? All of it. If you fail it at even one point, you're out. That's how high God's standard is. That's how pure God is. His holiness demands moral perfection. We could never get there by climbing the ladder of the law. Who here would stand up and profess your perfection morally? They preached a distorted gospel. They preached a damning gospel. 
Paul says, if I or an angel from heaven comes and preaches another gospel to you other than the one that you heard from me, he is to be accursed. That means he is to be damned. There's one gospel. There's one way. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. No man comes to the Father but by me, through me. He is the one bridge to heaven, beloved. You add anything to that, your gospel is another and you are damned. You cannot add anything to Christ's atoning work. You take a big pot and you, you mix in religious ritual with the pure blood of Christ, I tell you that is a direct affront to God. He will not receive you. And it's in direct opposition to the Bible's teaching that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that was the word that, that was so difficult for the Roman Catholic Church to stomach in the Reformation was that word alone. Grace, yes. Faith, yes. Jesus, yes works also. Prayer to Mary also. You see, it's Christ alone. You understand that, right? That salvation is a gift. That righteousness is nothing that you will ever accomplish in this life. The righteousness that God demands can only be accomplished by God. It can only come from God. And it comes to you as a gift through the agency of faith. Faith is the, is the pipe that God pushes his righteousness through, that, that he saves you by. It is a gift that we receive through faith. Salvation is, all of it, every ounce of it is of the Lord. It is a gift of his grace to those who believe. It is Christ's righteous life and his substitutionary death on the cross alone that are sufficient to save any man from his sins and from certain judgment. Beloved, I cannot say it any clearer than this. You make no contribution whatsoever. None. We are spiritually impoverished and our pockets are empty and we come before the Lord with empty hands. Really, if we had anything in our hands to offer, it would simply be this, our sin and our unrighteous attempts to merit his good favor. And all of that is sin. And we drop all of that so that we might cling with both hands to a cross in which the, the, the prince of glory died. He who is innocent and undefiled. He who is sinless. He who gave himself on that tree for us as a substitute. We cling to Christ. We cling to his cross. We have nothing else 
to cling to. Jesus pays the entrance fee to heaven in full and down to the very last cent. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God. Not as a result of works, Paul says, just in case you didn't catch it the first time. Not as a result of works that no man may boast. 1 Corinthians 1, for it's by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, that's passive. He became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul put it as simply as he can put it in Romans 3.23, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Any attempt to add human merit, to add good works, to add good behavior, to add religious rights is deeply offensive to God and it will cast you out of the kingdom. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are clinging to Christ and nothing else. Well, you can't get to heaven unless you're baptized, says one. Run from the dog. You must keep the Sabbath and meet on Saturdays if you want to be saved. Flee for your life. You must pray to Mary. You've got to pray the rosary if you want to be right with God. Beloved, get out. You can spin a prayer wheel. That'll please God burn incense and med meditation. You can go on your knees and, and flay your back with, with glass-embedded straps so that, that you can somehow atone for your sin. You can go through acts of contrition. You can make a pilgrimage. It's this rite. It's that ritual. It's this ceremony. It's this ethical code. Men gurgle up with this stuff all the time. Another way to heaven other than Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way. It's been well put that there are two religions in this world. Those that are founded on the principle of human achievement, what man does to warrant salvation, and the only true religion, Christianity, which says that Jesus paid it all. Anything added to simple repentance and faith is a corrupt gospel, and it is a gospel that cannot deliver. It is a gospel that will damn. And Paul identifies these false teachers, and he describes them in three ways. Let's, let's look at it. When Paul says beware, it's literally a word that means to, to look at with intensity. You are to watch them. They're dangerous. And this wasn't just some antiquated command for the days when false teachers used to exist. You understand that? This is a directive to you and to me as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be vigilant. We're to be watchful. Paul says, first of all, watch them, they're dangerous. They're the dogs, he says. Dogs in the first century were very different than our domesticated pets. Uh, they were anything but, you know, <laughs> fuzzy golden doodles. 
These, these dogs, you need to think in terms of the dingoes of Australia or the wild dogs of Africa that, that hunt in packs. They're, they were mangy and they were snarling and they were aggressive. They were thieving scavengers that ran in packs. They, they fed on trash and they would prey on whatever they could kill. That's what false teachers are. They're predators. Another illustration of them would be that they are wolves who pose in sheep's clothing. And wolves have a particular penchant for lamb, don't they? They love lamb. And so it is with false teachers and the sheep of Christ's flock. In the beginning, they look like us, they sound like us, they like to be around us, but somewhere under that faux white wool is a, is a hungry, loud, unclean, violent, indulgent wolf. And you can read about these. I'll just, you can read about them in a number of places in Scripture, but you'll get full treatments if you look at, at these chapters. You'll, you'll need this for your home fellowship group tonight. You can look at Ezekiel 34. You can look at Matthew 23. You can read the book of Jude. You can look at the second chapter of 2 Peter. You can read through Acts 20 and the things that Paul says there about false teachers. You'll begin to get a picture of what they're like. Here's the point. They have a wonderful plan for your life. You understand that? They'll tell you so. And the end goal is simply this, to lead you away from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. That is their end game. They hope to score a bunch of other things from you at the same time. They want your money. They want relationship with you. They might hope to lead you into immoralities of all sorts, all shapes and sizes. But what they want fundamentally is this. What the evil one wants is fundamentally this, to lead you astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. It's intriguing, isn't it, that in the Jewish mind, dogs were unclean and the Bible says that that is one of the, one of the characteristics of, of dogs. They're very unclean. They're immoral. It's ironic here, isn't it, that, that Paul, you know, the Jews refer to the Gentiles as the goyim, the dogs. Paul, who is a Jew, takes that moniker and turns the table and throws it right back on those who would be seeking to lead those who had hoped in Christ back to the law again. He says, those Jewish folks who are seeking to lead you astray, those are the true dogs. Beware of the dogs, Paul says. Watch out from them, for them, flee from them. They're dangerous, they're deceptive. Secondly, he says, watch them. They're working against Christ, not for him. He calls them, you'll note that, evil workers. They're not good workers. That's oftentimes the way they appear. They look moral. They dress nicely. They bring a bag of groceries to your house if they might get something in return. You see, uh, it's, a, it's a strong showing in the flesh, and oftentimes they come across as very moral people. You remember the Pharisees. Jesus says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones. You appear clean and white on the outside. Man, do you glare. But inwardly, there's nothing but death and decay. 
These are religious men who are steeped in pride, who are seeking to earn favor with God and with you by virtue of bringing what appears to be a very holy and religious rite, telling you that you must keep it. You must add this to Jesus if you want to get saved and stay saved. You could simply put it this way, Christ was not enough for them. And I want you to think about that statement. Jesus Christ, in the minds of these men, is not sufficient to make full atonement and to provide a spotless righteousness. Beloved, to say that Christ is not enough, do you see the offense that that would be to the Father who gave his only unique Son out of love for the world so that we would not perish? Do you see how egregious that is? And I pause here, A, because it's worthy to pause here and think about it for a minute, but I also pause here because I know how easy it is as one who knew the joy of the Lord at one point in your life because you trusted in Christ and you hoped in him alone and he set you free from your sins. But I also know how over time the tendency is to crowd Jesus with all kinds of other stuff that you've learned in the Christian faith and you fall prey again, don't you, to thinking, I'm not doing enough. No wonder your joy is lost. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. And you've got to come back to it over and over and over again. Ah, but my, san, my, my sins stack up, do they? Or has he removed it as far as east is from west? Do they stack up or has he not said to us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of how much unrighteousness? All of it. Has he said that in the end, he's going to bring you in front of him and somehow, if you're not blotchy, he'll receive you to himself? Or has he said that he will present you before himself blameless with great what? Joy. Do you see what you have in Christ? Can you delight now? Does your heart not leap at the reality that Christ has washed you, beloved, white as snow? You say, but my sins are as crimson. He knows. And he calls you to the table and he says, let's reason together. I will give my son. He will take your crimson sin upon himself and he will wash you white 
as wool. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're just going to pick off a few verses and kind of march through here, but you've got to see it. Here's a book that was written to address this issue. of justification by grace alone through faith alone and not by being circumcised or, again, coming under the law of Moses. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15, we'll pick up there. You remember that Paul had confronted Peter because he was hypocritical. He was withdrawing from the Gentiles because, well, they didn't have quite the pedigree that we Jews have. Paul comes to him and confronts him and says, Peter, what are you thinking? You stand condemned. Verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. It's, it's true that we have, we have the, the word of God. It's true that Christ comes from us. It's true that we have had a, a past history of relationship as, as, uh, as a people with God. We're, we're not those sort of crass Sinners as the Gentiles are. We're not pagans. That's what Paul is saying. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even though we're Jews, even though we have this heritage, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Look over at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, what's he talking about? He's talking about the law. He's saying, look, I used to think that I had this ladder that had been given to me by God and there were a series of rungs on that ladder by which I and my strength could climb that ladder and I was awfully good at it. He'll tell us that in the weeks to come in Philippians. I was awfully good at it. I could get way up that ladder further than most people. But at the end of the day, that ladder cannot reach to heaven. And Paul came to understand that it was through faith alone in Christ alone that he was saved. And so he, he took a bludgeon, a, a hammer to that ladder. He tore it to pieces the ladder is laying there in front of him, and he says, look, if I, if I reconstruct this thing, if I start putting glue and sticking it all back together and clamping it together again, if I begin to live on that track, the works track, he says, it's then that I become a transgressor, thinking I can be righteous enough to attain heaven. That makes me the ultimate sinner, looking at God and saying, I don't need your Christ. I got this. That is the sin of sins. Paul says, if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law, I died to the law. The law helped me understand my sins so that I, I got off of that path. I went over here to the path called grace, in which Jesus Christ is found, in which true righteousness, that righteousness of God is found. 
Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Look at these words, beloved. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you try to add anything to salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, you are looking at God and saying, your son died for no account. Skip over to chapter three and look at verse 21. Well, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. The problem isn't with the law, beloved. The problem is with us. We cannot do the law. We cannot keep the law. Verse 22, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. All the law did was in, imprison us. It put us in front of a mirror and it said, here's the standard of holiness. How are you doing? And you looked at yourself on the mirror and you said, not well. Right? <laughs> if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. One last chapter, look at chapter five. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but that the one who is disturbing you, these are the dogs, that that one will bear his judgment, whoever he is. He says in verse 12, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. If they're going to preach circumcision, he says, I wish they would just castrate themselves. Did you hear the language of that? My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, did you, did you hear the language of that passage? To, to, to add anything to the cross, what have you done? You have nullified the grace of God. You've counted it as nothing. Christ, Paul says, will be of no benefit to you. Not partial benefit, none. You are severed. Another pun on circumcision. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. That is to let go the rope. You have, you have let go from the one rope that was able to, 
to draw you up and into the safety of the arms of Christ. You have let go, you have fallen from grace. Paul says you have abolished the cross. Here is the critical issue. This is the difference between heaven and hell. And the question is, where does your hope rest? On what do you rely for favor with God? Is it Christ and Christ alone? Or is it some admixture of grace and works? Beloved, our faith has found a resting place, hasn't it? It's not in device or creed. It's in Christ. It's in him alone. We have no other argument. We make no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. These men were dangerous dogs. They were evil workers. They had trusted in religious right to seal the deal. They had what I would call a belts a belt and suspender soteriology. That's how they kept their pants up spiritually, so to speak. They had the belt of Jesus around their waist, and just in case that didn't work, they hooked on, on, on their belt some suspenders to, to hold them up in case Christ failed. Listen, you cannot be saved by law, you cannot be sanctified by law, and adding anything to the sacrifice of Christ is to incur nothing but condemnation. Your works cannot credit you in any way. They will only condemn you. And the law simply shows us our sin. It cannot deliver from it. We need to get to the third thing he says about the dogs and we will wrap up. Come on in, children. Sit down. Nice to see you. Paul says, thirdly, watch them. They preach righteousness by works of the flesh. They are the false circumcision. Here's the point. He says they look like they've got the external sign of the people of God, but they are not God's. And this is a very important point, and we've hinted at it already, and I can move through this quickly, but it is one that has damned many a soul. It is one over which the Mormons stumble and the Jehovah's false witnesses stumble. It is one over which Islam and the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Roman Catholics, and we could go on and on and on. Every other religion other than Christianity stumbles at this point that you may keep up the appearance of some sort of moral goodness and think in your own mind that you have now earned your way to heaven and you have earned your way into God's favor. The Bible says no that even our best is as filthy rags before him. And you may be circumcised in the flesh, but it merits nothing with God. It never was about the removal of the flesh. That's why Paul calls them here the false circumcision. The word circumcision is peritome. It means to cut around Peri, perimeter, right? This word is katatome, to cut down, to castrate, to mutilate. It's a strong word. He's saying that these people who are the false circumcision are, are seeking instead. They have, they have fallen. They have cut down their righteousness. There, there is nothing that will hold them up in the end. 
You see, this has always been the issue. If you are circumcised without faith, it means nothing. If you are circumcised without true repentance, it means nothing. In Christ, circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing. And if you don't have total reliance on Christ and him alone, well, all you've done is mutilated yourself. You have cut yourself off from Christ. Beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware what we could call the pseudo-circumcision. These false teachers will steal your joy. They will put you on a performance treadmill. They will crack the whip and they will put you under a law that cannot save. It can only take your life. And weak as it, as it is in the flesh, you cannot accomplish it. They will tell you you must work harder. You've got to keep rituals and rites. They will tell you to do this and they will tell you to do that. You need to beware of people like that, beloved. You need to flee from people like that. You need to recognize what it is, a false gospel. And a squeaky clean, clean, sorry, squeaky clean external does nothing with God. It's about what has happened inwardly are you born again? Have you been made anew? Well, you'll find next week that the characteristics of true Christians are diametrically opposed to all of that. And I just want to close with this. My friend here this morning, if you don't know Christ or if these things come to you as news, I would ask you, who or what are you trusting in today for your salvation? A good way to think about it is if you were to arrive today at heaven's gate and Christ were to meet you there and say, why should I let you in? How would you answer him? The answer begins by saying, you shouldn't. I'm a sinner and I have nothing to offer. But, <laughs> you always want to add the but, but you have given your son who lived righteously on my behalf and you have imputed that righteousness, you credited it to my account. And because he was perfect, he earned the glories of heaven and that same son, because of his righteousness, was able to offer himself as a perfect substitutionary blood sacrifice in my place. He bore my sins in my place. He took my sin, gave me his righteousness. I, therefore, am qualified for heaven on account of Jesus. The only answer I can give you, God, is Jesus Christ. That's why you should open the gate. I tell you if, you, if you give that answer, if you truly believe that and understand that in your heart, God will forgive all of your sins and he will grant heaven to you even this day. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, I would close with this for you. How is the joy factor in your life? Are you glad in God? There is something about the gospel that will make you buoyant, it will float you even in hurricane waters. No matter the hardships you face and no matter the circumstances of your life, there should be a peace and a, and a river of joy really that undergirds all of that. Always 
like an aquifer flowing under the surface of your life is a gladness that's irrepressible in God and all that he's done for you in Jesus. And perhaps today you have come here and you've forgotten these things and you've fallen prey again to that performance mindset. You're on the treadmill trying as hard as you can. You are working up a spiritual sweat. I tell you, Jesus says, come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, Jesus wants you to rest in him. Rest. I would encourage you again to reflect on the reality that he is sufficient and it is finished and you need to go and rest in him that you might rejoice with joy inexpressible. Our hope is built, isn't it, on nothing less. Daryl, come on up. On nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's stand together and declare that great truth